Tonight we are looking at probably the most famous passage in all of Isaiah. You've got a few verses here and there that that may rival it in terms of people being familiar with it, but in terms of a a large passage of scripture from Isaiah, this is probably the one that most people are most familiar with, and it is the passage on the suffering servant from Isaiah, just the very end of Isaiah 52 and then through Isaiah chapter 53. One of the things that gets brought up when uh, this passage is talked about is, who is this, who is this referring to? Who is the identity of this servant? And if you were to ask a, a rabbinic Jew who this passage is talking about, they would not say that it's the Messiah. They would not say that it's Jesus. Um, someone who is schooled in the Jewish interpretation of Isaiah would say that the servant is Israel. And so it's referring to a national servant that suffers. Um, and so you've got different understandings of who this passage uh, refers to. And so I just want to talk about those a little bit and, and talk about some of the suggestions that have been made about this passage. But I, then I think we're going to conclude and all of us will be in agreement that ultimately this talks about the Lord Jesus and as the Messiah, as the anointed one of God. So uh, who is this passage talking about? The servant's identity. Uh, one of the suggestions has been it's Isaiah himself. It's the prophet. And we even have some justification for that interpretation from Isaiah itself, because Isaiah the prophet is referred to as the servant of the Lord. Isaiah 20 verse 3 says, Then the Lord said, Just as my servant Isaiah has gone stripped and barefoot for three years as a sign and portent against Egypt and Cush. And, and there are a couple other places where Isaiah is specifically referred to as the servant of the Lord. And so someone might come to that understanding after reading Isaiah that maybe this is talking about the prophet himself. And we get in the New Testament a reference to that possible reading in Acts chapter 8, verse 34, when an Ethiopian eunuch was uh, in a chariot and the spirit of the Lord moved on Philip to go and witness to that Ethiopian eunuch in the chariot. And it turns out that when Philip got to him, that Ethiopian eunuch, uh, that official from Ethiopia was reading from the Hebrew scriptures. And now they didn't have chapter numbers and verse numbers back then, but uh, Luke in the book of Acts quotes a few phrases to show us where he was reading in the prophecy of Isaiah. And he was reading in this passage of Isaiah 53. And Philip gets up in the chariot and he says, uh, do you know what you're reading? Do you understand? And he says, how can I unless someone shows me? And he says, who is this talking about? Is it talking about the prophet? Is he talking about himself? Or is he talking about someone else? And so that's one of the interpretations that someone might come to is that this is talking about Isaiah, the one who suffers. But I think there's, that's not the, the full understanding of this passage. I, I don't think that, that we can settle on that as, a, as the right answer. Well, what about Israel? Like I mentioned a moment ago, um, 
the those of the Jewish faith, Jewish interpretation of Isaiah, would say this is talking about Israel as a national people. And we have a lot of justification for that possible interpretation in Isaiah as well. Because especially in the second half of Isaiah, chapter 40 and onward, we find several references to Israel being referred to as the servant of the Lord. So we have a passage like Isaiah 41, 8 and 9 that says, But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, you descendants of Abraham, my friend, I took you from the ends of the earth, from its farthest corners I called you. I said, you are my servant. I have chosen you and have not rejected you. So there it's pretty emphatic, right? That he's talking about Israel, Jacob, I have chosen you. I've called you my servant. And so a rabbi would say here that Isaiah is interpreting itself for us right here. And so here Israel is called the servant. Therefore, it must still be talking about the same servant all the way throughout. So Isaiah 53 must also be talking about Israel as God's people. But I think we have to look a little bit harder than that. We have to wrestle a little bit more with what Isaiah is doing here. Uh, we have another verse in Isaiah 44, 21. Remember these things, Jacob, for you, Israel, are my servant. I have made you. You are my servant, Israel. I will not forget you. But I think we have to look harder at what Isaiah is doing here. So another possibility is that this is talking about the remnant of Israel. Not just Israel as a whole, including the rebellious part of Israel that is being chastened by God and going into captivity. But perhaps this is referring to the righteous remnant of Israel that is being redeemed and is being brought home back to the land of Jerusalem and Judah. And there's a possible understanding of that in Isaiah 43. He says, but now this is what the Lord says. He who created you, Jacob, he who formed you, Israel, do not fear for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. So he's talking about Jacob, Israel, but he says, I've redeemed you. So it's in the context of deliverance, in the context of redemption. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt for your ransom, Cush and Seba in your stead. Since you are precious and honored in my sight, and because I love you, I will give people in exchange for you, nations in exchange for your life. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. I will bring your children from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. So this is clearly talking about rescue from exile, of, of God bringing a remnant back home of the Israelite people. And in verse 10, he calls them his servant. He says, you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me, no God was formed, nor will there be one after me. So you can see references in Isaiah where Isaiah might be referred to as the servant. All of Israel might be referred to as the servant. Uh, a holy remnant that God is delivering and bringing back home 
might be referred to as the servant. But as we walked through Isaiah, we also see places where the identity of the servant seems to be focusing on an individual, where where a, a corporate or a national interpretation doesn't seem to fit with what the passage is talking about. And so I think it's especially in these where the servant is talked about more as a single person that the fulfillment of those passages has to be the Messiah, has to be Jesus. And we even see some of these passages in other places in Isaiah, like in Isaiah 42 verses one through four. I think it's really hard to understand this one as a nation, as a corporate identity. It seems to be really talking about a person, an individual. He says, here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness, he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. In his teaching, the islands will put their hope. Really seems to be focusing on an individual, someone who will rule in justice and righteousness, someone who will teach, teach his words and his laws to the nations. This seems to be pointing to a a, a perennial, if you will, a, a climactic servant that where Israel as a, a nation might be a type of that, that ultimately this person is the highest fulfillment of that. And then we have Isaiah 50 verse 10, who among you fears the Lord and obeys the word of his servant. You really couldn't say that of a nation because you, you, you obey the word of Israel. It's it's a, an individual servant who teaches the word of the Lord and you're responsible to obey him. And then we get to the New Testament and that same passage, Acts chapter eight, that I was describing a few moments ago where the Ethiopian eunuch says, who is this talking about? Is this talking about Isaiah the prophet? Is he talking about someone else? And it says, Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. So, we have from the very earliest days of the church the interpretation that this passage is referring to Jesus of Nazareth, the Messiah. And running all throughout the whole New Testament, you have several references back to Isaiah 53 that clearly link it to Jesus. And so just because of the way that Isaiah kind of has a, a multifaceted view of the servant. Sometimes it can be a, a nation, Israel. Sometimes it can be the prophet. Sometimes it can be the, the remnant that God is calling out of Israel. But we also see places where an individual is focused on. And it's in those places where I think we have Jesus most clearly uh, predicted and talked about in, in the Old Testament. And then we have uh, Matthew eight seventeen where it's talking about Jesus and his healing ministry. And Matthew specifically quotes from this passage where it says, he took up our infirmities and bore our diseases. And so he's referring back to this. Matthew says it's in fulfillment of the prophet. Uh, we have Peter in 1 Peter 2, 21 to 25. And all the way through this whole passage, all four of these verses, 
uh, he has different snippets, different phrases, quotes from Isaiah 53. He says, to this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Quote, he committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. That's from Isaiah 53. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. And that is a place in Isaiah where it says, like a lamb uh, going to slaughter, he was, he was silent and opened not his mouth. So he himself bore our sins. That's from Isaiah 53. In his body on the cross, so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, Isaiah 53, 6. But you now, now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So I think from Isaiah itself, we have good uh, reason to believe that this servant is an individual. It's a, it's a Messiah, an anointed one. And then when we get to the New Testament, we see it clearly fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And all of the apostles take that understanding. All of the early church take that understanding that this is talking about Jesus. So that's kind of just introductory and so that we know and have a good sense of why we believe that this passage is talking about Jesus, why it refers to him. Now let's walk through the passage and I'll give you a heads up. We're not going to make it all the way through. All right. This is a, a longer outline. It's a more detailed passage. Um, we're not going to make it through all the way through this passage tonight uh, because we'd have to run in order to do that. And I don't want to do that through this passage. So we'll have at least a couple weeks here. The good news is my outline's already done for next week. So that, that helps. But uh, we're going to look at the first few verses here, which actually begin in chapter 52, verse 13. And this is the, the introduction of the servant. And by the way, this is just a reminder that, that when you're reading the Bible, sometimes it's helpful to ignore the paragraph, or not the paragraph, but the chapter and verse divisions. Sometimes ignore those. Because not always, th those were not written by the biblical writers. So Isaiah didn't put 52 verse 13. That's just a, it's just a way for us later on to be able to find stuff. So people put numbers in the verses really not until about the 1500s. But the 1500s is the first time we get verses in their uh, verse numbers. So sometimes they don't always get it, I believe, exactly right. And so sometimes when we read Isaiah 53, we start in Isaiah 53.1, but I believe you have, you have to back up a few verses to really get the start of the description of the servant. And so beginning in 52, verse 13, we have this servant introduced. And verse 13 talks about his wisdom. His wisdom it says, see, my servant will act wisely. And is there anyone other than the Lord Jesus Christ that you could say is one who is full of wisdom? What I want to do as I walk through this passage is, is I want to, uh, as much as I can, tie this to Jesus Christ. And, and when I can, bring in New Testament references to show us how it's fulfilled in Jesus Christ. But here, as we get introduced to this servant, we see his wisdom. That he is someone who is going to be endued with wisdom uh, from God. 
And we, we read in the New Testament, don't we, that when Jesus taught, people were amazed. They were amazed at his teaching, that he taught as one having authority, not as the scribes or the other teachers of the law. So he will be someone filled with God's wisdom. He will also be someone who will receive an exalted status, which is kind of a paradox, isn't it? If you think about it, that on the one hand, he's described as a servant, but he's also described as someone who will be highly exalted. But that fits with what we read of the use of servant throughout scripture. For example, Moses is referred to as the servant of the Lord. Uh, David is referred to as a servant of the Lord. So a term that would seem to be one of dishonor throughout scripture actually becomes one of honor. And we see in the New Testament, especially that Jesus humbles himself and takes upon him the form of a servant, right? In Philippians chapter two, but then he is highly exalted. So verse 13 says, see my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. One of the reasons why it's important to, to start reading this passage back in chapter 52 is because it ends where it begins. So at the beginning of this passage, it talks about the exaltation of this servant, but then it goes on to talk about how he will suffer for God's people. But then at the end, he is exalted again. And so it is, it really kind of, follows the, the order of events, if you will, in the incarnation of Christ, in that he is exalted, uh, Philippians 2, being in the very form, being in the very nature of God, he willingly humbled himself, took upon him the form of a servant. And so then we see his humiliation and his suffering, but then lastly, his resurrection and exaltation. There's probably no other passage in the Old Testament that can lay out the order of the incarnation and Christ's work as well as Isaiah 53 does. And so he starts exalted, he humbles himself, suffers for his people, and then is highly exalted again. But here he's called the one who is lifted up and highly exalted. And we see in Philippians 2.9 that ultimately God will give Jesus the highest place. That at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so Jesus is indeed the highly exalted one. He is also described in verse 14, his appearance is described. The servant's appearance. And so here we go from exaltation to humility. Verse 14, just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness. And this is certainly fulfilled in the crucifixion of Jesus. In, in the whippings, the beatings that he endured, uh, he, was not, he was not recognizable, almost. Uh, not someone that was desired to be looked at after that trial and crucifixion. We read in Matthew 26, 67 and 68 that they took Jesus and they spit in his face and they struck him with their fists. Others slapped him and said, prophesy to us, Messiah, who hit you? So we don't have a precise quote of Isaiah 52, 14 in the New Testament, but we certainly see it fulfilled in, in the beating of Jesus, the crucifixion of Jesus. 
Then we see the servant and his relationship to the nations in verse 15. Verse 15 says, So he will sprinkle many nations, and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see, and what they have not heard, they will understand. Uh, This verse is loaded with significance, isn't it? I mean, first we see he will sprinkle many nations. In other words, this servant who starts out as an exalted one, who then is humbled and who is rejected and despised by people, that he will be the one who will sprinkle many nations. What does it mean to sprinkle? In the Old Testament, the idea of sprinkling usually is associated either with atonement, with the sprinkling of blood, perhaps at the altar, Or sometimes it is associated with the sprinkling of water, which is a sign of purification. And so in either of those images, we see the servant of God having a a redemptive, purifying work for the nations, in which he is either sprinkling them with his blood and atoning for their sins, or he is sprinkling them in a metaphorical way with water, purifying them and I don't know that you necessarily have to choose between those images. I think the image here is one of of Christ redeeming the nations through his blood on the cross, through his sacrificial work. But it won't end there, will it? He will he will move on be beyond sacrifice to kings now have to be silenced before him. Speaks of his rule and his authority. And that's what really what's amazing about this passage is you see a mixture of all that Jesus is and all that he will yet be. Because we've seen Jesus as the suffering servant. Now he is exalted and he is there still more to come with his exaltation, isn't there? And Isaiah kind of mixes all these together. He talks about in one verse, he talks about him rejected and his face disfigured. In the next verse, he talks about him ruling over the the kings of the earth and they have to be silenced before him. And then it says, for what they were not told, they will see. What they have not heard, they will understand. Paul quotes this verse in the New Testament, in the book of Romans, and he applies it to the gospel of Christ going out to the nations. And those who were not Jews, hearing the message of the gospel, the nations, if you will, the nations hearing the message of the gospel and coming to Christ through the proclamation of the gospel. So we see in Romans 15, 20 and 21, Paul says, It's always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known, so that I would not build on someone else's foundation. Rather, as it is written, those who were not told about him will see and those who have not heard will understand. Meaning, those who have been in the dark, those who have been blinded to the truth of the gospel, that truth of the gospel will go to them. And their eyes will be opened, their ears will be opened, and they will believe, and they will understand, and they will be saved. Thus, Christ sprinkling many nations through his redeeming work and through the proclamation of the gospel. And so that's the introduction to the servant. And then we see the servant's rejection. The servant's rejection in verses 1 through 3. 
In verse 1, we see the struggle to believe in the servant. The struggle to believe in the servant. Verse 1, Isaiah says, Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And that, that speaks of a, a closed-mindedness. It, it speaks of ears that have been closed, eyes that have been blinded, uh, so that, that people are not open receptive to the truth of the message. And that fits very much with Isaiah's call, doesn't it? Back in Isaiah chapter 6, when God called Isaiah and said, you're going to be my prophet, I'm going to send you to my people, and here's what I want you to preach. And Isaiah says, how long? And, and God says, until it's destroyed, until judgment comes. And, and God told Isaiah that their ears would be closed, their eyes would be shut, their hearts would not be receptive, and they would not believe. And so Isaiah went out on that preaching ministry knowing, knowing that he would have little success in responding to that message. And so here that fits with that. Who has believed our message? And then we see in the New Testament, same thing, the same response to Jesus, where people see his works, they hear his preaching. The, the very Son of God, the Messiah of God, standing before them, and they do not see him, they do not recognize him, and they reject him. John 12 says, even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet. Lord, who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason, they could not believe. Because as Isaiah says elsewhere, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts so they can neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts nor turn and I would heal them. Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. So there's John saying, this passage in Isaiah is talking about Jesus. And just as people rejected the message of Isaiah, so too people rejected the message of Christ. They did not listen. Paul says the same thing in Romans 10, verse 16. Not all the Israelites accepted the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? And so just as they rejected Jesus, so many of the Israelites in Paul's day also rejected him and his proclamation of the gospel. And he says, this is exactly like what Isaiah said. Lord, who's, who's going to believe? Who's believed our message? And so the servant is being rejected. Uh, he has an ordinary beginning in verse 2. The servant has an ordinary beginning. Verse 2 says, he grew up before him like a tender shoot like a root out of dry ground. In other words, no fanfare, no, no great spectacular entrance into the world. And that very much fits with the life of Jesus, doesn't it? Born to a poor family, born in Bethlehem, but then moved back to Nazareth and grew up in Nazareth, really a, a nothing of a town in Galilee. And that's kind of like the root out of dry ground, right? Uh, spring, something springing up out of a place where you would not expect it. Like Nathaniel said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? So something good coming out of a place that you do not expect. Jesus did not, was not born to a king. He was born to just a poor Judean family living in a very poor town in Galilee. 
He had an ordinary beginning. There was nothing special uh, about his appearance to draw people to him. It says that he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. So, in other words, Jesus was not like the famous people of today. You know, who are the famous people today? The famous people are the actors, the actresses, the uh, sports athletes, the entertainers. Generally speaking, they're the people that attract people to them because of their looks or their charisma or their personality or their talents. And Isaiah's saying of Jesus, the servant, there's really, in terms of looking at him, there's nothing special that, you, that would draw you to him. Nothing special about his appearance. And in fact, he will face derision and rejection. He will face derision and rejection. He was despised and rejected by mankind. A man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. So this is the servant of God, sent by God to accomplish God's work, sent to God's people, and he was despised and rejected. John 1, 10 and 11 says, He, that is Jesus, was in the world. And though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, that is his own Jewish people, but his own did not receive him. Can you think of anything more ironic than for the creator of the world to be standing in the midst of creation and for that creation not to recognize its creator? That's what this is saying of Jesus. Even though the world was made through him, they did not recognize him. He came to his own, predicted by the prophets. For hundreds of years, the prophets had said, God is sending one. God's sending an anointed one. He's sending a servant. And he showed up and no one received him. And so he was a rejected servant. 